All right, we're going to go ahead then and continue this morning in, uh, in a series called Life Together. And we are cruising right on through the book of 2 Corinthians. And up to this week, I've been recapping each week of what we've talked about, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm basically saying now we're over, well, not halfway, but we're close to halfway through the book. And um, I said last week was a bit of a kind of a watershed moment um, where Paul gets to the the crux of what he's doing. But before that, he's been talking about how life is painful sometimes and how things change and all that stuff we've been talking about. And Paul's been working on reconciling um, himself to the Corinthians. And, and last week, he ended by basically begging them to be reconciled to God. I shared with you the, last week the idea of um, our call to be influencers for the gospel. And I, I wanted to add one thing to that. Because last week we had this opportunity to dedicate those two beautiful children to the Lord. Um, and I know today, at, at probably with, as with every generation before us, people say, man, it's not like it was when I was a kid, you know. And we feel often like we're losing uh, influence or control. And I just wanted to throw this down for you this morning as we get into the word today. That um, despite the cultural noise... And despite even maybe the noise in our own hearts and our minds and our life, there is no greater influence on a young person's life than their parents or parental role models. Like for all the stuff we say about, oh, look, the celebrities being crazy, and oh, look, the peers, all these teenagers being crazy, and look, whether we recognize it or not, and I was thinking about this after the, series, the sermon on influencing, the, the, our children in our lives, and that would mean the children in Blast, the children in nursery, the children running around here today, are looking to adults, to parents, to parent, parental role models for influence. Not only am I saying this because I want to encourage you all as believers in Jesus Christ that you ha are having impact, but this has actually been studied uh, repeatedly. And what's really interesting, I, I heard this study, it was by a, a parental organization, and they did a survey of parents. They said, parents, what do you think the largest influences are on your kids? This is a couple years ago. And they listed the media as number one, celebrities as number two, their peers as number three, and themselves as number four. Like, they thought, at best, I'm number four. And then they went into the same house and they asked their children, who's the largest influence in your life? And the, the kids had the same order but parents were at the top. Parents were at the top, above social media, above Instagram, above all the other influences in our life, that kids, because of how God made us to be, are constantly looking to us for our influence and example. And so I just wanted to encourage you in that way. Now, we're gonna to talk today about how Paul is real about faith in Christ, and he's, no one's being asked to be perfect, but I want you to know that despite what you may think, you have a huge influence on kids around you. And I hope that we recognize that. Um, we ended last week, and I want to touch this real quick before we move into chapter 6 uh, with this. Paul ends by saying in chapter 5, verse 20, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Okay, so he goes to talk about being influenced. He says, now we're like Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. But then look what he does here. He says, so we implore you, and I said to you last week, that means to beg you on Christ's behalf. Since Paul says, since we are ambassadors, we have a job to do. And it's, I'm gonna beg you, be reconciled 
to God. And I thought, well, now that's really interesting. This is the, the second letter we have in the Bible written to the church in Corinth. It's the fourth letter Paul's written, and he's and going to visit him again. But before he does, he's begging them, please be reconciled to God. And I'm thinking, well, what's going on that Paul's asking the church in Corinth to be reconciled to God? There's a couple of things. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The first is he could be saying, believe in the salvation that Christ brings to us. You say, well, now how can you be in the church and not believe in Jesus? Hopefully, there are people around who don't yet believe in Christ when we're proclaiming the gospel. There could be people in Corinth that have not been reconciled. And the letter's read that there could be people that Paul says, if no one has said it yet, I'm going to ask that you would trust Jesus as Savior. Be reconciled to God. He's been proclaiming the gospel the whole way through the book. But there's a second way that I think is important to understand, and it's this. Be reconciled Christian in your life to God. And this is an idea we'll come back to later, but it's the idea of sanctification, right? And so that's just a fancy church word. It means that over time, hang out with Jesus, we should become more like Jesus, not artificially, not externally, but in our convictions, in our heart, in our minds, in the ways that we function. And so he says this then. He says to the church, be reconciled to God. I wonder this morning, do you think, do you believe that you are reconciled to God. Some of you may have kind of an auditor mindset. Reconciliation means you look at the numbers here, look at the numbers here, and you see if they all match up, right? You look at life here, you look at life here, and you see does it match up. This would be life in Christ, our life, does it match up? Are we finding ourselves growing in holiness? Have you been reconciled to God? Another way you could ask this is, do you know and believe in Jesus Christ? Well, Paul throws down that gauntlet, and I thought it was important to touch that before we get into chapter 6, because it builds now on everything he has said, everything he's written in, to, to the church in Corinth. And today as we engage with 2 Corinthians again, Paul's going to tell us what we should do with that faith with our hearts wide open. So we're gonna do now, we're gonna get into God's word. I'm gonna ask you to do, we always do pray for God's wisdom that he would impart to us knowledge from his word. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to open your scriptures in front of you that you would be our teacher. I'm reminded this morning, Father, that over the generations there are many great prophets who spoke in your name and yet now we know your Holy Spirit speaks, that you speak to us in our hearts through your word. I pray this morning that we would have minds open to your truth, that our hearts would be wide open to you, whatever you'd have for us, and that we would be um, able, empowered uh, to follow after you. I pray that you would do this work uh, for your glory and the good of all your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to pick it up here in uh, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1. Paul says this, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Because he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, and now is a day of salvation. So Paul goes right from this begging the church in Corinth to be reconciled to God to this. As God's fellow workers, we urge you, do not receive God's grace in vain. I'm thinking, now that's a radical thing to say to a church. How could you receive God's grace in vain? The word vain there means emptiness or worthlessness. 
that there's a way to receive God's grace in our lives that's worthless. Well, what would they even look like? I mean, isn't it the grace of God? As a matter of fact, before Paul says that, he gets into this idea as God's fellow workers. Um, uh, too often when we think, and I, I want to kind of ease into this idea because I know we've talked about it from all angles. This month is the month of witnessing or the months of sharing the good news. And when Dale's here, you hear him say it differently than witnessing because many, many of us have different thoughts of what that means, right? But I love what Paul says here as God's co-workers then, right? Since we're begging to be reconciled to God, then as God's co-workers uh, don't receive his grace in vain. The, the word co-workers is uh, synergy, that's the, it's actually not synergy, but in the Greek, it's really close. It's, um, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, synerguentes, something like that. That's not good Greek, but that's close enough. For my, you know. That somehow what we must understand as believers in Christ is we are not saving the world. And God is saving the world. But as Paul just said, as though through us, as though through our witness. And so I want to say a couple of things that, first of all, we recognize when we're serving Christ, when we're being obedient to Christ, that we aren't doing something apart from Christ, but with Christ, synergistically. The thing that he's already doing. That's why over the years I've encouraged you to believe in your heart that if you've been praying for someone that they would come to know Christ, that you would believe fundamentally that God's already working there. How often do you think that, well, I'm going to be the first one to talk about Jesus. Probably not. Hopefully not. Um, I heard a stat one time that said something like, someone needs to hear about Christ seven times before they take it seriously. We have this idea of like, there's this one moment, this one thing. No, it's a repetition of God's love for us because we have such a tendency to think, well, but God doesn't love me, right? And so a persistent community of, of witnessing the word witnessing has baggage for many people, sharing good news, but it means to tell what you know, and that's it. Not to go beyond, not to have to be a prophet, to, to say things that are profound, but this is what I know. And then to carry burdens for other people synergistically with God. Paul says, as God's synergistic workers, working with what he's already doing, I implore you, don't receive God's grace in vain. Make sure I got that. Do not, I urge you, yeah, yeah, it's like, it's a pressing issue now. Paul said, be reconciled. I urge you, don't receive God's grace in vain. And I asked the question, well, how could you do that? How could you receive it in emptiness? Paul goes on to this way. In the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, Paul says, Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Here's the truth. Now is the time. Now is the day. So Paul goes to this idea of working with God and sharing the good news that that, um, we would uh, work with him, but not in emptiness, uh, but that today is the day. What? To share our faith, to, to have hope for the world, the purpose of God's grace is not for us alone, and that's part of the problem. I, I, right now, I'm really wrestling, church, with this idea. I've had many, many people whom you and I love dearly say, man, I just can't do the church thing anymore. You know, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I believe he died for my sins. I just can't, can't do the whole. And I don't mean family Bible. I mean any church. Can't do the church thing. Nope. No. 
And, and, and besides my automatic reaction of like, well, why is that? You know, like there's a scripture that comes to mind that says, how can you love a brother who you, you see? How, how can you claim to love God you don't see when you can't love a brother you do see? You know, it's like the church is too painful for me to be involved with. It's just the people are too messed up. The things are too crazy. I just, I can't, I can't do that. But here's the problem. Now, I'm not talking about church attendance necessarily, but being the church is if you think that Christ died to save you and that's it, you're missing the gospel. You're missing part of the gospel. Like, like, have you ever thought about the fact that if God wanted to save everyone like that instantly, he could do it, he could just do it. Bang, one big moment, it'd be over, that'd be it. And yet, in his patience and forbearance, he chooses to allow us to participate with him, and that's what Paul's gonna get into here, in sharing good news. How could you receive the, the, the grace of God in vain? One way I think is if you were never to share that same grace with someone else. This is why I have a really hard time, and I'm guilty of it, church, when we find ourselves being impatient and unkind and unloving toward others around us, especially those who don't know Christ. We're constantly, I feel like, pressured or fomented into this kind of angry state as if our anger is going to bring about God's righteousness. That's not how it works. Do you not know that it's the grace of God that leads to repentance? That the very grace that God gave to us, we are called to give to others generously. It's not for us alone, but it's grace to share. That same grace that we've received Paul then quotes here from uh, the book of Isaiah, and it's, um, let me see, I wrote it down here because I want to forget where it was at, um, Isaiah 49, 8, but, but one thing I, I, so anytime I find an Old Testament reference in the New Testament, I always try to compare and contrast them, like, what's the same and what's different, and you might say, well, it's the Bible, so it's exactly the same, it's usually not the same, actually, <laughs> there's something different, and I was really struck by this, this is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you, you know what Isaiah the prophet says, in the time of my favor, I will hear you, and in the, time, the day of salvation, I will help you. In other words, in the Old Testament, Isaiah is saying, God's going to do something. There's going to be a time, Israel, when he's going to give you favor. There's going to be a time, Israel, when he's going to save you, but it's not yet. If you don't know anything about the time of the prophets, it's a hard time for the people of God because they're prophesying things that have not yet come to pass. And Paul here calls back in this grace of God that we've all received that it's already true. In the time of my favor, I have heard you. It's, it's done. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. And then to drive the point home here, Paul says this. I tell you, church, today, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. That word now, I want to just spend just a second on here. It, I called it today. I almost put on the slide today. You could write today in the notes if you wanted to, right? But it means a moment, an instant, this time. You know, one of the funny things that happens in the, in the churches, from the earliest time of the church, the church starts to think it's over. God's grace has done all God's grace needs to do. That was like, what, around 100 AD, the church is already calling it rap. 
And here we are, what, 1,900 years later, 2,000 years later, and there are people going, it's over. <laughs> We're done. God's grace has done all the work. It's gonna... Why? Because it's worked for us. But think about all the generations in there that this has been and this is the time of God's favor. By the way, the word favor means his listening to us, his concern for us, and that this is the time the day of salvation. I hope that makes sense to you, that your whole life has been lived in God's grace. It's not to say it's perfect, there weren't problems, but it's to say this has been the day of salvation. This has been the day of God's favor. This has been the time we are blessed to live in a time that we are not yet waiting for a Savior, but we, we have a Savior who's with us right now. And Paul drives that point home. Now, he doubles down. Now, what is he saying to the church? He's trying to instill a sense of urgency. <laughs> 2,000 years ago. Wake up, church. This is the time. Do you know that today? in your life, <laughs> despite the news, despite the drama, despite the influencers? Do you know today is a day of God's favor? That now is a time of God's salvation? That that's true for you? That it's true for others? Well, that's a profound idea that Paul begins this uh, call to witness with, but then read on with me, chapter six, verse three. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. And I'm gonna read, I'm gonna stop there because we're gonna barrel through four through 10, 11 in a minute, but I want you to hear that Paul says that him and Timothy and Titus have put no stumbling block in anyone's path. Why would he say that? There's some inference in the book that they've done some things that aren't really gospel-oriented, that they've said some things that aren't really fair to the church in Corinth. And, and the Corinthian uh, church is getting other teachings from other people. Oh, don't follow that, Paul. Do, do, do this other thing. It's easier. Or don't follow that, Paul. Do this other thing. It's harder. <laughs> and, and Paul's like, no, we've put no stumbling block in your path that, that um, let's see, we put no stumbling block in your path that our ministry would not be discredited. And so Paul's like, we, we don't. Now, I wrote in my notes, we ought not put stumbling blocks in people's paths. We ought not add something else. I, I can't help but read, when I read the word stumbling block in Paul's letter, that I'm reminded that Jesus Christ himself is called the stumbling block, right? It caused people to trip over their own lives that there's a God who made them, who died to save them, and it's required that you believe and know him to be with him forever. That this life is, is, is a bit of a test, if you will. Will you receive the grace of God or reject it? Will you share the grace of God or keep it to yourself? What is going on in our lives? But many people have a tendency to put extra stumbling blocks, and here's the conviction that we ought add no stumbling blocks. A friend of mine planted a church with this very idea. I'm gonna plant a church where there's no stumbling blocks except for the gospel. Nothing's gonna stand in the way except the cross of Christ. The only thing you have to wrestle with here is that there's a God who died to save you and you need to be reconciled to him. That's the only thing we're gonna make, a stumbling block for the people who show up at our church. And it was pretty successful. 
It started to draw people who felt like they were far from Christ and they started to ask the question, you mean me? You mean I'm included? You mean God wants my heart, my life? God has something better for me? Well, Paul says that he does this in order that our ministry, and the word there is service, right, diakonos, will not be discredited or slandered. And now we're gonna bust through here. Check this out. 28 items, I think it was. Yeah, 28 items Paul lists off that proves that he put no stumbling block in the way. Look at what it says. We put no stumbling block in anyone's way so that our ministry not be discredited. That means to be, you know, dismissed or whatever. Verse four, instead, instead of that, rather than that, as servants of God, we commend ourselves. That means we stand before you beside ourselves in every way. He's writing to the church in Corinth. First, in great endurance, they don't quit. Paul and Timothy and Titus do not quit. In troubles, that's this idea of, um, of uh, pressure or, or restrictions. Look, in hardships, and that's the idea of narrowness, right? So one is pressure, the other is narrowness. Hardships and great distresses. Another word is uh, tribulations, right? So I love the word tribulation because it, it, it's more uh, expressive than just some simple hardships, but uh, distresses. Now let me say something about this, by the way. I'm gonna go through all 20 of these individually because that's how they're listed in the Greek. When I first saw this, the NIV's interpretation, I'm like, oh, look, they're in sets, three here, three there. I was like, oh, there's something here. No, it's not. I'm gonna talk about what, there's, what we see, but it's interesting that he lists out these 28 things that, that shows that they've not discredited their ministry or put stumbling blocks in the way. So they didn't quit through troubles, through uh, tri trials or hardships, um, and through distresses or tribulations. Now he goes on, in beatings, right, physical assault, in imprisonment and in riots, in, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. I want to stop at five for a minute. I want you to notice something with me in the scriptures here. All those things he listed so far are plurals. Troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, which is a continuation, sleepless nights, plural, and hunger or hungriness. <laughs> So when he talks about these things, he's not like, you know, that one time I suffered for you all. He's like, I'm constantly suffering for you all. My ministry, I'm constantly doing these things. I say that because sometimes we have a tendency to go, I remember that one time I had a hard time with it. No, Paul says his, his ministry is not discredited. He stands before God because of the repetition of it. Okay, pick up in verse six. In purity, in understanding, in patience and in kindness. And I want to pick apart a couple of these. The first is purity is like holiness, right? In, in purity. But then the next here is, um, let's see, understanding. The word there can be interpreted as knowledge or doctrine. And I know for some people, doctrine is kind of like a churchy word. But it's important that we understand that when Paul says we stood before you in doctrine, it means we've been consistently teaching you the same things. I'm sure there are people that when Paul came and said, Paul, tell us something else. Don't talk about Jesus again. Don't talk about the gospel again. Tell us something else. We, we, we need something fresh and new. And Paul's like, we've, we've, we've been consistent in our knowledge. And it's not knowledge like head knowledge. It's, it's like biblical doctrine. It's doctrine of God. 
We've been consistent in patience, he says. We've been consistent in kindness. Let's see where we're at here now. Yeah, check this out. We've been consistent in the Holy Spirit. Hagios pneuma, which I love um, anytime. There are plenty of spirits in the world, pneumas, things that carry us along. Have you seen people flying kites, right? You fly the kite, you catch the wind, you know? We were down on the beaches of Florida. People were kite surfing. That's really cool, right? But it's not any old wind that blows any old way. When Paul says we've been consistent, our ministry has been consistent in the Holy Spirit, I want to remind you that the criteria for leadership in the church was the, the a sensitivity to the Spirit of God. It was true whenever they were appointed as elders over the church, apostles, then elders, then deacons. And it says, find men full of the Holy Spirit who will serve. So Paul says our ministry is consistent in the Holy Spirit of God, God's Holy Spirit. We've been consistent in sincere love. And he says, in the Greek, it's genuine love authentic love. We've been consistent in truthful speech or the word of truth and in the power of God. Just a quick aside, one of the things we have a tendency to do in the church is things under our own power. I'll tell you two ways we do this. The first is that we think we got this, right? Just just watch, watch. I've had friends of mine tell me that they could tell it was the beginning of the end for them in a particular ministry or opportunity because they were telling God to stand aside while they did something cool. Watch what I'm about to do, God. And they said to me through tears, I should have known it was over. (laughs) God is not interested in doing something with us that he's not involved with. He's simply not. And then the other way this works is um, is, is that we we think that God's going to do it without us. But that's not true. It's in the power, the dunamis of God, that we are faithful in our ministry and our work. And so we have this then with the Holy Spirit, genuine love, the word of truth, and the power of God. Now watch this. With weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. Isn't that a funny thing to stop on? Like, he could just say weapons of righteousness. He's like, in the right hand and the left. <laughs> you know, if you're side, right hand and left. You know what I'm saying? And I, I'm an old school gamer. I don't game much anymore, but I used to. Dual wield, <laughs> right? Like, there's no hand that's not full of a, a righteous tool of God. That There's not something that he's doing. This over here with this hand. This is the good hand. This is the bad hand. That's not what he's doing. No, he's like, both hands are full with righteous weapons of God. The weapons of righteousness in my right hand and my left. Everything that we are doing or aspire to do is based in the righteousness of God. The weapons of righteousness. Here we go then, eight, through glory and dishonor. Now they're starting to be paired up. Interesting, right? Through bad report and good report. Um, glory and dishonor, both are, those are opposites, right? Bad report and good report, well, those are opposites, right? Uh, genuine and yet being regarded as imposters. Have you ever been falsely accused of, of doing, and, and you didn't? Like, you're like, no, I'm genuinely concerned. Like, no, you're not. You're not really concerned. No, I, I'm genuinely concerned. Have you ever had that conversation? Genuine and yet regarded as imposters or pretenders. Um, known yet regarded as unknown. Uh, dying and yet we live on. I want to talk about that. Beaten and yet not killed. So let's just stop there for a second. I want to kind of run through these. So he's like, um, we, we wield both in the righteousness of God in both hands through glory and dishonor, right? Doxa and 
dishonor amongst ourselves, uh, bad report and good report, as imposters and true, being known and, oh, wait, 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 I apologize, I did it twice now, being unknown and yet fully known. <laughs> being unknown and yet fully known. In other words, like, that, that um, we feel like people don't know us, but we make ourselves fully known, and um, especially toward God. Wait, and look at this one. Dying, and the NIV says, and yet we live, right? What does it say? Um, yeah, and yet we live on. But I love the Greek in this. Because Paul says, dying, he's actively dying. <laughs> By the way, we're all actively dying, if you don't know <laughs> how life works. Uh, but look, <laughs> we are living. <laughs> I love that. He says, behold, in the Greek, <laughs> dying, yet behold. And why do I make a big deal of this? Because he's going through this list of 28 things, and here he goes, but look, we're living. How many of us are so concerned, and I'll include myself, in our dying that we're not living? Look, we're living, though. In spite of our impending death, we live. I love that. I love in the middle of this that Paul just kind of throws that out there. But look at us. Look, we live trying to encourage the church. Um, let's pick up here. Ten. Wait, wait. Nope. Nine. Known yet regard as unknown. Dying, yet we live on. Beaten, and yet not killed. Right? So we've suffered, but we've not been stopped. Ten. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Interesting. By the way, notice the introduction of the word yet here. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Um, that means you're carrying pain, you're, you're always hopeful. Uh, poor, yet making many others rich. And then I love how it ends. Having nothing and yet possessing everything. Every time I've listened to the book of 2 Corinthians in this series, I've been listening to it repeatedly. Hopefully you have been maybe reading it, listening to it as well. I'm always struck by those words. Um, possessing nothing and yet, um, what does it say? No, no. Having nothing and yet possessing everything. Uh, Paul makes this proclamation that despite of our situation in life, we have all that we need. So being sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet enriching many, and then having nothing yet possessing anything, and, uh, uh, possessing all things. And I was like, well, now that's interesting. What's the difference there? Paul, this is the illustration I want to give you on this. He says, we don't cling to anything. <laughs> possessing nothing. There's nothing that our fist is wrapped around this life that we have to have to live. Nothing. And, and I'm like, well, then what's he say next? The possessing everything. Possessing it means to bind it, to hold it down. Right, I remember one time we were uh, traveling and we met some missionaries and we were early in ministry and we were being blessed. It was ridiculous. We had this experience. But we were talking about as newly uh, people in the ministry, we were mourning some of the loss we thought we'd experience in life with Christ. We really were, right? And this missionary told us, don't ever believe that because you don't have everything, God's not going to bless you with all of it. In other words, and he started to un unpack, he and his wife, some experience they had that they had simply because they're being obedient to God. Now, I'm not saying that pastors and missionaries are more obedient to other people. I'm saying in our lives, we ought not, as believers in Christ, not saying pastors and missionaries, hold on to anything. And I'm preaching myself here as much as any of anyone else. But we, can, but we hold down everything. Like, we get to experience all of it. 
Reminds me of a passage that says, um, do not going, go on asking for all these things that pagans chase after them, but instead seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The words of Jesus, right? Follow me and you will have all you need. And that's not a play on words. You'll have all you need in Christ. You'll have all things and you'll cling to nothing. 28 ways there that Paul lists. And I wonder, when I went through the list, which of these attributes matches your own life? As I read that, which attributes match my life? And I'm like, oof. Paul says all those things could be stumbling blocks to others. And he said, if we put none of these stumbling blocks in the way, I'm like, well, good for you, Paul. You're perfect. <laughs> I'm not, but you are. But we know Paul well enough by now to know that he's not claiming perfection. Which of these attributes matches our life for real, which of these attributes matches our life for Christ? And I wasn't saying Christ versus real. I'm saying in Christ, do we see those things? Are we willing to suffer those things? Some patterns I noticed in the text, and you can go look at this yourself, but he starts to list with the word in. In this, in that, plural, plural, suffering, beatings, imprisonment, all these things. In those circumstances, we've been faithful, right? But he moves from in to with, you know, with the weapons of righteousness, with, um, actually, actually, the only one, I think, with weapons of righteousness, is the only one, dual wielding, dual wielding. And then he goes from in to with to through, right? Through glory and dishonor, through bad report and good report. And then he goes from that through to as. In, with, through, as. Interesting to me. It's like he goes from the circumstances a believer finds themselves in, right, to the things that we fight with, the weapons of righteousness, to um, uh, through the things that we're going to face, these adversities, when, when things are they're saying black and it's white, or they're saying white and it's black and the world's coming against us, the adversities, and yet we're persevering. And then the last thing he ends with is as, as, being. All the end of that list is things that are, are constant states of being for believers. Or, and I'll talk about this, progressions in things, progressions in believing, in being, I should say. 18 times, 18 of those words were in words, in these circumstances. One time with word, the righteous weapons of God. Through two times, two pairs, and then as being seven pairs. Interesting enough, by the way, he goes from nouns to adjectives to verbs. You can look it up. It's crazy. But he goes from situations to descriptions of situations to who we are, who he is. And any of these 28, and I'm sure there's more, can be stumbling blocks to others. But Paul says, no, we recognize that and we place ourselves before God. The word actually means beside myself. I stand beside myself in the presence of God, Paul says. Paul consistently acknowledges all the struggles that we face as Christians, and yet he does not want to ever distract from Jesus Christ. I can tell you this, some of the greatest grievances in my own spiritual life has been whenever I've felt like I've fallen short of the glory of God. I do it all the time. I do it all the time. And then I'm reminded of the gospel that it's not about us. It's about Jesus. 
Do you recognize your need for both these things? The salvation of Christ died for your sins and the sanctification of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. In other words, it is that we are saved. Yes, I said last week, and we actually read that during the dedication, that um, we will be saved even as one who's escaping the flames. But if you build on it, build in Christ. That's called sanctification. It's not an effort of our own, but a surrendering to Jesus, what he would have for our lives. And Paul takes us through that process, those li- that list from uh, circumstances to adjectives to doing, being, being Christians. So do you recognize your need for both? Last point here then, two, cha- two verses. Verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. I love that. Oh, there we go. Um, and open wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you're withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak to you as my children. Open wide your hearts also. So we have Paul then, after this great proclamation and his saying that, you know, we're not putting stumbling blocks, he says this, we've spoken freely to you and we've opened wide our hearts. Do you have someone like that in your life? Like, do you have honest friends that you can be like, this is what's really going on? Or or do you have that friend that can look at you and say, how are you? And you're like, good. And they're like, no, really. How are you? Some of us don't have those kind of relationships. Some some do. We ought to have people in our lives that we could speak freely to. And Paul says here, radically, to the church in Corinth, we have spoken freely to you. We've said the things that need to be said. We're not afraid of you or of other people judging it. And we've opened wide our hearts. You see, here's the truth. This kind of uh, relationship is risky. And it's honest. And it's loving. So the truth is this. That as believers in Christ, we live big-hearted lives. And that's tough. Tough. Um, I was, when I was a kid, I always liked to, I told you this before, but I can't help myself. Play with snails. Anybody play with snails when you're a kid? Just me. Well, one thing's weird. You can do some other things too, I'm sure. Ants, whatever. They can be small, right? Like tigers just won't work with so much because tigers are terrifying. But little things, when you touch them, they freak out, man. And I remember when I was a little kid, I'd touch the snail and they would just, ooh, their little antenna. And if you touch them, they'd go all the way up in their shell. They just disappear. They're gone. That's how we are often in relationships. Paul says, I spoke freely to you. I opened wide my heart to you. But you can hear in the letter, I was telling someone that um, un, not researching the sermon, I was reading someone, they said, they're talking about this letter that Paul wrote and how it was all emotional and it's so crazy. The Greek is crazy the way he talks about it. And they go, and then later on I hear they go, yeah, that's why the second book of Second Corinthians is so unique in the whole Bible. It's the most unique book in this way. And I'm like, what? Because <laughs> Paul's like, I've opened my whole life up to you and you've been touching me all over it. <laughs> Paul wants to go up in his shell, right? And he says, no, no. Have you ever talked to people like that before? They're like, um, through tears, I I loved somebody once, but never again. I I trusted somebody that, I trusted them that time, and they hurt me, and never again. I, I tried one time, it didn't work. Never again. Yeah, 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 I used to believe that stuff too. 
but never again. You see, Paul is exhorting the church in Corinth to not fall prey to closed hearts and closed minds and small heartedness. He's like, no, have a big heart. Open your heart to us. As a matter of fact, he actually says that our hearts are wide open to you, but yours are not open to us. That's a pretty direct accusation. We are not withholding our affection from you. That's the, his passion, his love, his concern. But you're withholding your passion and concern and love for us. Paul very much sees the relationship in the church as a dynamic relationship. It's not him over them, it's him with them. It's not them over him, it's him with them. And it's not any other leader in the church over any of them, but them all together in Christ. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe he's making a plea to the church that we ought to be big-hearted, as the people of Christ, we ought to be big-hearted. I find myself saying that often. If no one else will do it, it should be us, not withholding our affection from others, especially not withholding our affection from brothers and sisters in Christ. He seems to indicate here that Corinth has been a bit of a fair-weather friend, you know, fair-weather Christians. Have you ever had people like that in your life? It's going good, they're around, it goes bad. They're out. <laughs> Sorry, I, can't, I just can't do it. Can't do it. I got baggage. I got history. I can't do it. I'm out of here. What is our call as Christians? Is your heart open wide to what God is doing in your life? Is your heart swelling, big heartedness toward what God can do in someone else's life? Do you sense the spirit of God in you? calling you forward into courageous love. And then how about you? Like, There's a really weird dynamic here, but Paul makes this case to the church in Corinth, but I would say that same thing could be said before God. Are you withholding your affections toward God? Has he not earned your love yet? Earned your allegiance? Earned your faith? Proven enough how much he loves you? Because here's the truth. As Paul says, I have not withheld my affections for you. God has certainly, certainly not withheld his affections for us. He loves us deeply. I want to read to you, and this is the last thing I'm going to share with you today, and we're going to share communion together. But I told you earlier that that, read, that reading came from Psalm 49, uh, 8. But I want to read to you right around it. Just hear the word of God. Isaiah the prophet in, in chapter 49 of Isaiah, verse 6 reads like this. God says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Judah and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the very ends of the earth. And then 8. This is what Yahweh says, in a time of my favor, I will answer you. In the day of my salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and make you a covenant and be a covenant for the people to restore the land, to reassign its desolate inheritances, and to say to the captives, come out, and to say to those trapped in darkness, be free. That's Old Testament Isaiah prophesying about what God will do through Jesus Christ. I hope that you know that today. I hope your hearts are open to that today. 
Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and to hear your word and to be um, present before you. We pray that you would work in our, our lives and that we would have an attentiveness to your Holy Spirit's leading. I pray that the only weapons we fight with are weapons of righteousness in the right and the left hand. And Father, I profess, as best I understand it, that we have no hope of doing this apart from Christ. But in Christ, all things are possible that you work with us and through us, that you save us and you save others, and that we are partners in that work. Would you help us to see that? If there's things in our life that we've been withholding from you, uh, sins that we think are too egregious to be forgiven, um, secret parts that we, well, we, well you know, we know you love the good parts, but not that part. I pray, Father God, that your Holy Spirit would gently open those places to yourself, that we would let your light come in to the darkness in our hearts and minds and restore us fully, that we could become uh, ambassadors for Christ, uh, those willing to say the most outlandish things because we've been saved and we're being sanctified. Help us with that work. If there's someone today that's, that's praying and thinking and have not, has not accepted you as Savior and Lord, just uh, rejecting your affections, I pray that your Holy Spirit would overcome the objection today. That they receive you. They would have a whole new life with you. And then, Father, as you continue to live in us, that we be reconciled to your image, bound to you. We pray you do this work as you will. In Jesus' name, amen.